Jonah chapter 4. We are continuing through our study in the book of Jonah in a series called Rediscovering God. Jonah is a prophet in ancient Israel, and he has grown up knowing God, but he has actually created a God of his own making, as we've seen throughout the book and as we'll see today. And so he needed to be retaught as he rediscovered who God really was. In turn, we are being reminded who God really is through this book. Or maybe for some of you, you are discovering for the first time who God is. Maybe you're, you're here today even asking questions about who God is and who Jesus is. First of all, we're really glad you're here. Second of all, it's my prayer and hope that by the end of the service today, you'd have a little bit better of an understanding as to who God is and just how much he loves you. So chapter three, if you were here last week, you remember that chapter three ends with the entire city of Nineveh repenting of their wickedness after Jonah preaches this message to them and tells them that they're going to be destroyed. They repent, and then God responds to that repentance and shows mercy on them and does not pour out judgment. Revival comes to Nineveh. The story continues in Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. For it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Would you pray one more time with me? This is kind of an intense spot in this story, Lord, and you know because you were there, but we are acknowledging it today. And you were right there with Jonah in it, and you're right here with us now. Thank you that you see where every single one of us is at in our lives, and thank you that you are able to take your word and the truth that you will speak and divide it up into a couple hundred little pieces and and communicate it to each one of us exactly as we need. And so we trust you to do that now. I ask that you would anoint me to speak and preach your truth For our good and for your glory, we ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonah, Jonah, the prophet, the prophet's entire job is to preach the word of God at specific times to specific people for specific purposes. And the greatest joy of anyone who preaches should be to see the people they're preaching to respond to the truth that they have just preached, especially if it's a hard crowd. When I, when I preach at church, which is not a hard crowd, by the way, and just a few people respond, I am so deeply humbled and thankful to God for allowing me to be part of something like that. In Jonah 3, Jonah preaches to the most difficult crowd of his entire career, if you will, an anti-God terrorist state. And every single person in Nineveh, not not a few, every single one from the greatest to the least, responds. 
After that kind of revival, we would expect Jonah 4 to begin with an ecstatic, thankful Jonah. But instead, it begins with a bitter, despairing Jonah. Verse 1 of our passage in the original uh, language actually reads like this. But it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. Jonah is not just angry with God that he has shown mercy to the Ninevites. He is livid. To him, what God has just done is actually evil. He is so enraged that he feels that it would be better if he were to die than to live given his present circumstances. During the first year of our marriage, um, God spoke to Emily and I and told us that he was going to give us twin boys. Several years later, um, we got pregnant, and lo and behold, it was twins. And we had the conversation about waiting to tell people till after the first trimester, because you can often miscarry in the first trimester. And then we said, wait a minute, God told us we were going to have twins, and now we're pregnant with twins. Of course, the twins are going to come to full term. And so we told all of our family and all of our friends. We even told the entire church. And then at week 14 of the pregnancy, uh, we miscarried both of them. God had spoken to us, and I thought he would fulfill that promise and that word to us in the way that I understood it. But he didn't. And in my opinion, that was not okay. And it honestly just about destroyed me. My, my, my faith was 100% on the verge of being shipwrecked. A few years later, when we had our baby, Nehemiah, who only lived for a day, uh, Emily experienced a very similar thing with the Lord. If you have not experienced it yet, chances are at some point you may have a time of reckoning with God like these moments I just shared and like we see here with Jonah as he is in his despairing anger. One of the most encouraging things about the book of Jonah, there's not very many, but one of the most encouraging things is that Jonah is very not perfect. He is a prophet with a book of the Bible named after him and his like faith is like this, right? Which is, I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me. The other thing that is also encouraging is the fact that through all of that, God is committed to restoring Jonah back to himself. And friends, he is committed to doing the same with us. But if we can prevent us from ever having to get to those uncomfortable places, struggling in our faith and our walk with God, that would be awesome. And so today, I would like to point out a few things that seem to have led Jonah to this place in an effort to help us not also end up there. And if you're already there right now, then I hope to give you some tools to understand how you got there and how to be restored. Three things that seem to have led Jonah to this place of his despairing anger. Number one, his self-righteousness. Number two, his self-centeredness. And number three, his self-forgetfulness. First of all, it seems that part of what contributed to Jonah's deep-seated anger with God and ultimately his despair was his self-righteousness. In Luke 15, uh, Jesus tells this story about these two younger brothers and their father. And their father was a, w a wealthy man, and so they knew that when uh, he died, they would receive an inheritance. 
But the younger brother went to the father and said, hey, dad, I'm at the prime of my life. Uh, can you just give me my inheritance now? The father was a gracious man, and so he gave his son the full inheritance. But instead of honoring his family, his father and his name with that inheritance, he left his home and he went and blew it on prodigal living, sinful, wasteful, lustful living until it was all gone. He got to such a low point in his life that he ended up having to get a job at a farm feeding pigs. After several months of doing this, he woke up one day and was like, my father's servants at home are living and eating better than I am. Even these pigs are living and eating better than I am. I have to go home. And I'm gonna say to my father, father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son but would you please allow me to just be one of your servants? And so he goes home and as he's walking down the road, the father sees him a long way off and he runs to his son and he wraps him with his arms and he kisses him. The son falls on his knees and says, father, I've sinned against God, I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but would you please have mercy on me and just let me be one of your servants? Father doesn't even respond to this request. Instead, he calls for his servants to bring a robe and he puts that robe around his son's dwindling body. He puts new sandals on his dirty feet and a ring of honor on his finger. And he shouts to everyone, my son was lost, he's found. He was dead and he's alive. Kill the fatted calf. We're having a party. We're having a celebration. And so they begin to celebrate. My son has finally come home. And as the night goes on and they're celebrating, the older brother who wasn't there during this, he was out in the fields working, he, he, he comes home. And he sees this big gigantic celebration and he asks someone, what's, what's going on? What's all the hoopla for? And somebody tells him, your younger brother came home. Your father's celebrating by throwing a party. And the older brother is livid. He goes to his dad and he says, my entire life, I have done nothing but honor your name. Nothing but obey every command of yours. I've even made myself like a servant of yours. You have never thrown me a party. And this kid takes his inheritance, dishonors your name and you, and wastes his money on prostitutes, and then comes home and says, sorry, and you throw him a party? And in this, we see a picture of self-righteousness in the older brother. Jesus told this story to Israel because they were the self-righteous older brother. God, we have loved you. We have done everything in our power to obey your law. We have been your people. We have done everything we can to live righteously. Yes, God, bless us, save us, heal us, restore us. But the Gentiles, the tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes that Jesus is ministering to, they have done nothing to please you. They have done nothing to obey your law. Don't save them. They don't deserve to be saved and healed and restored. Self-righteousness has a way of convincing us that our righteousness somehow has earned us the right to judge what is right or wrong. Self-righteousness makes us forget our place. It makes us forget that we too were and are in need of grace and mercy. Jonah 
is like the self-righteous older brother in the prodigal son story. He has put himself in the place of being the judge. We see it in verse 1 when it says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. As if Jonah's opinion carried so much weight that it would give him the right to judge what was right and wrong. He looked at the wickedness of Nineveh and determined that what they were doing was so evil that they were not worthy of being forgiven. And he looked at the kindness of God and determined that that kind of kindness on that kind of people, that was actually evil. Nineveh had gotten away too easily, he felt. Yes, they had repented, but surely their kind of violence and immorality was so deep-seated and extreme that it deserved some kind of punishment, right? And that's why he says what he says to God in verse 2 when he says, I knew you were going to do something like this, God. That, and you get a little clue as to what was happening in their conversation in chapter 1, right? He's like, that, that's why I left in chapter 1 when you told me to go there in the first place because I knew you were compassionate. I knew you were full of love and mercy. I knew you were kind and I knew you loved to save people who repented, even the most wicked people. That's why I ran from you. And what is implied there is this. And God, that is not okay. Jonah had been confronted with this self-righteousness that was in him when he was in the belly of the fish. And it, it had been diminished a bit there, but it was not yet eradicated. He cried out there from the belly of the fish in chapter two and he said, salvation comes only from the Lord. He was declaring that he needed to be saved by God. But in that same prayer, he makes sure to also make a distinction between the kind of person he is and the kind of person those people, those pagans are out there. In essence, he was saying, yes, I need to be saved and yes, I have sinned against God, but it is nothing compared to what those people over there have done. And this, friends, is why he was so susceptible to the spiritual crash that happened to him here after the revival of chapter 3. He still felt to some degree that mercy had to be deserved. And in his judgment, Nineveh had done nothing to deserve it. And we all have a tendency to do things like this to one degree or another. To act like we somehow are qualified to determine whether or not what someone else does is right or wrong. Or to take it even further to judge whether or not something God does is right or wrong. Who God shows mercy to. When God heals or doesn't heal. Who he heals or doesn't heal. Who prospers and who doesn't. Maybe you've caught yourself with this passing thought, why them though, Lord? And why not them? If you were going to do a miracle, why wouldn't you do it in there? Look at their life, God. Look how they live. Look how committed they are. Why not them, Lord? It was a hard lesson for me to learn. I, I thought that if I uh, tried my hardest to obey God and do all the right things, then God would work in my life in a way that brought me happiness and kept me from tragedy. And so when tragedy hit, I was quick to question if God was actually good or not. I quickly became the judge who determined if it was right that God allowed what he had allowed in my life. 
But the truth was, I didn't have the right to make that call. Only God is infinitely wise. Only God is infinitely loving. Only God knows all things. Only he can see how every bit of suffering and every bit of mercy and grace will ultimately affect us and work uh, in us and work within his sovereign will to redeem us and to redeem the world around us. Only God is perfectly right and perfectly righteous all the time, which means that he is the only one who actually has the right to sit in that judgment seat. It's not our place. And when we act or think like we are somehow qualified to sit there, then we start a chain reaction that leads to disappointment, disillusionment, doubt, anger, bitterness, hopelessness, and eventually even despair. You know, Jonah was right about the Ninevites. They did not deserve the mercy of God. But neither did he, and neither do we. We are all recipients of God's grace. No one earns the right to be called the child of God. It is a right that is given to us. Jonah pulled up the surface weeds of his self-righteousness when he was in the belly of the fish, uh, fish, but he never got to the root of it. And this is where he ended up because of it. That is why we must deal with self-righteousness relentlessly because Jonah didn't. The second thing that contributed to Jonah's despairing anger was his self-centeredness. Jonah obviously had a theological issue with God, right? He felt that if God was going to be just and if he was going to be right, then Nineveh needed to be judged. It was a theological issue. But Jonah's anger, Jonah's anger shows us that this isn't just a theological issue taking place in Jonah's mind. It is a personal issue taking place in Jonah's heart. And I believe that that is actually what God is getting to in verse four when he responds to Jonah's rage, not with a rebuke, but with a question. Is it right for you to be angry? To me, this sounds like a loving father talking to his boy. His son who is enraged because he doesn't understand how his father could show such kindness to such a wicked people. And so his father sits down with him to get to the bottom of what's happening in his son's heart because he knows that that is where the true, that is where the true issue lies. This was a hard issue for him. His anger exposed an issue in his heart that this question got right to the core of. Is it right for you to be angry? Tim Keller has this way of explaining how this kind of anger is the emotion that we experience when we are trying to protect something that is most dear to us. Anger is the emotion we experience when we are actually trying to protect something. Jonah is angry. So what is so deep in his heart that he feels the need to protect it? So much so that if he cannot protect it, then he doesn't even want to live anymore. Whatever it is, it is not God. Something else has become his center. 
Because when God is at the center of our lives and God is the source of our life and the source of our peace and the source of our joy and the source of our safety and well-being, then we could actually lose everything else and still find a way to live because we have not lost our source. We have not lost our center. But when Jonah says, in essence, I have no desire to go on, he means that he has lost something that has replaced God as the main joy, reason, and center of his life. He has a relationship with God, but there is something else that he values more. So much so that he is willing to live apart from God if he can't get that thing. When you say, I won't serve you, God, unless you give me X, then X is your true bottom line, your highest love, your true God, the thing that you trust and rest in most. Here is Jonah saying to God, who should have been the only real source of life and meaning in his life, he says to God, because you have just done this, I now have no source of meaning in my life. What could be so bad about God saving Nineveh that it would cause Jonah to say, my life is now not worth living? Well, Nineveh was a terrorist state. Its very existence threatened the security of Israel. Jonah's country. The will of God to save Nineveh and the future of Jonah's country were converging on one another. If Nineveh survives, then me and my country may not. As a prophet and a missionary, Jonah should have been glad to see the Ninevites take a step away from wickedness and toward God. And he should have actually responded by saying, Ah, I'm going to go teach them now about my God, about Yahweh. But instead, he was furious that they had even been given a chance to turn toward God. And in doing so, Jonah exposed where his true allegiance lied. Jonah's ideas about God and his ideas about himself as part of God's chosen people had become the center of his thinking and ultimately the center of his entire life. He had dethroned God and enthroned his nationalism. And when he was confronted with a choice to obey God or protect his country, he chose country over God. He had replaced God with a God of his own making. His well-being and the future of him and his people had become his God. And so, of course, he was angry even to the point of wanting to die. The source of his greatest love, joy, and safety had just been threatened. That, friends, is not just patriotism. That is outright idolatry, no matter how you look at it. And this is part of what was destroying Jonah. Because as the saying says, idols always break the hearts of their worshipers. Jonah ran away from God in chapter 1 because he thought God was going to be merciful to Israel's enemies, which he determined would be unjust of God. And then in chapter 2, he's confronted with the reality that he also needs God's mercy and has no hope if God is going to be completely fair and just with him. And so from the belly of the fish in chapter 2, he cries out to God and receives a deeper understanding of God's grace. 
And it appears that that is now the bedrock of Jonah's life and faith. He has finally hit his lowest point. Surely from here on out, he's going to build his life on the foundation of God's grace, trusting in God, surrender to God's perfect will, surrender to God's sovereignty, no matter what it looks like, even if he doesn't understand it. Surely that's how Jonah's going to proceed in his walk with God. But that wasn't the bedrock. There was something deeper in there. If you say, I'll obey you, Lord, if you give me that, then that is the non-negotiable and God is just a means to that end. That, whatever it is, is the real bedrock. It is more foundational to your happiness than God is. It was good that Jonah loved his country and his people, but even good things can become idols. As long as there's something more important in your heart than God, it will trap you without you even realizing it. And then when something threatens that idol in your heart, you will become like Jonah, overwhelmed even to the point of despairing your own life. Jonah didn't deal with his self-righteousness and he didn't deal with his self-centered idolatry, which is why we must deal with it, friends. The third and final contributor to Jonah's despairing anger with God was this, his self-forgetfulness. Jonah's entire job was to speak on behalf of God. The prophet's job is to do what God says, not the other way around. But Jonah had forgotten his place and in doing so had forgotten who he was and why he was here. Now, I know some people look at that phrase and you're like, what? That doesn't seem like a problem. Isn't it good for us to forget ourselves? Shouldn't we not think about ourselves more? Doesn't the Bible say to deny yourself? Yes, we do need to deny the sinful parts of ourself, but we do not deny the redeemed parts of ourself. In fact, we must remember, we must never forget who we are in our redeemed self. Our understanding of who we are and why we're here shapes the way that we think and feel and ultimately live. And I believe that Jonah, forgetting who he was, forgetting that he was a child of God first and a prophet of God called by God, him forgetting that is part of what contributed to him ending up where he was. Like every prophet, Jonah had a supernatural experience with God where God called him, spoke to him, said, I want you to go preach to these people. Now, granted, it was a, a difficult task. God had called Jonah to preach to a wicked, wicked pagan people full of lawlessness, the kind of people you'd want to protect your kids from, the kind of people you'd honestly expect to fall under the full extent of God's wrath. But nevertheless, God had called Jonah to preach to them. And then he, he did and they responded how every preacher prays people will respond. It should have been like, dude, this is what God called me to do, and now it's happening. This is my like, assignment on the planet. This is who I am. This is who God made me to be, and now it's happening. Look at this. He should have rejoiced in that. He should have responded with thankfulness to God. But instead, he ends up isolated and alone, consumed with self. He has forgotten who he is and who God called him to be and instead has embraced his selfish, self-centered, self-righteous desires of his sinfulness. And in turn, he becomes the object of everything in his life. He becomes the end goal of everything in his life. In the original language, the words I, me, 
or my are used nine times in just two of these verses. And I get it because that's what I do. That's what you do. This is what we do. We forget, when we forget who we are and why we're here, we become entitled and self-consumed. Yeah, but how is this going to affect me? Like, what pressures is this going to put on me? What's it going to require of, of me? Am I going to feel comfortable with this? Is this going to be life-giving for me? When we and our ideas and plans become the end goal, then everything else becomes a means to that end. And this is exactly what spiritual pride and self-righteousness does in us and exactly what idolatry does in us. It causes us to forget who we are in Christ and why we're actually here. One of the reasons us losing our twins almost derailed my faith is because I had some of these serious misunderstandings about what God's end goal was for my life, why I was on this planet, why he had saved me. If I was faithful to follow God and obey him, then he would be gracious to me, of course, right? And, and that meant to me that he would give me an abundant life, which to me meant a life of blessing and goodness free of tragedy. But this kind of thinking put my earthly, temporal happiness as the end goal of my entire life. So when we lost our twins, I had to come to a reckoning because God had allowed this to happen and it had created the furthest thing from happiness. And if that was God's end goal in my life, then God was a fraud. And I had to come to grips with this. And when I finally worked through it, it took me years. I had to come to grips with the fact that, oh, I'm not the end goal. My well-being is not the entire end goal here. God didn't save me for me. He didn't save us for us. He created and saved us to be in relationship with him, which, listen, with him, which is actually the only place that our hearts will ever find their true joy, their true peace, their true safety, their true life, their true contentment, their true sense of purpose, love, and peace. That is what God saved us for, and we find it in him. And even the blessings that he does give us are not just for us. Everything that is received in the kingdom is meant to be given away. We have been blessed so that we can be a blessing. We are not the end goal. And I had to come to grips with this because like I said, if, if God's end goal in my life was my happiness and then he just allowed my twin boys to die, God was a fraud because I was not happy. But if God's end goal in my life was to bring me closer to him because he knew that that's where I would actually find true peace, and if his end goal in my life was to work through my life to show others the way to God, and if his end goal in my life was ultimately to bring me to glory in eternity where there will be no more pain, suffering, or death, if that was God's end goal in my life, then my goodness, all of a sudden my twin boys had a purpose. Our son Nehemiah had a purpose. They weren't just prophesying to the nations anymore at that point. They were prophesying to me. Jonah forgot who he was. He forgot that he was a child of God who was deeply loved by God. 
And he forgot that God was good and not just good, but good to him. Do you realize the part of your identity is you're somebody who God is good to? You're somebody who God is good to. It was part of who he was, but he had forgotten. And we must remember. We must choose to remember that God is good and that he is good to us. We may not understand why he does what he does, but we can believe that everything he does, in everything he does, he is good. And that he loves us. Which means that if he allows something to happen and it hurts, that it's not because he's not good or because he's not powerful enough to change it. It means that he is allowing it. In his love and goodness, he is allowing it to accomplish something beautiful in and through us, even if we can't understand or see it yet. God wasn't out to get Jonah. And God wasn't about to forget about his people, Israel. Jonah didn't need to protect his country as if he could have. God was good and God loved him. And God was more powerful than any terrorist state, which is a place that Jonah could have rested. That's the kind of God that Jonah could have rested and trusted in. And this is the kind of God that we, friends, can rest and trust in. So maybe you're not in this kind of place with God that Jonah was in. That's awesome. I'm glad for you because it's not that fun. But we all need to heed the warning from Jonah, and here's why. Jonah's anger, disillusionment, and discouragement, and ultimately despair didn't show up. Listen, it didn't show up until something terrible happened in his life. What happened in Nineveh stepped on something deep in Jonah. It pulled the rug out from under him and shook the very core of his foundation. And that is when we get exposed. The fire of trials, the fire of tragedy has a way of pulling up from the bottom to the top the impurities in our own hearts. When the rubber met the road and tragedy hit, and make no mistake, this was tragic for Jonah. When tragedy hit, this is where he ended up. He ended up angry and alone because he never fully dealt with what was under the surface, which is why we must deal with it before we get to that place. Go ahead and ask Cece to come up. I'm gonna finish by saying just a few things here. Um, I need to remind us today, guys, that God is after our restoration and healing. This life is a process of restoration and healing. A process of God eradicating sin and its effects from our lives. God is going to use every moment of your life on earth to eradicate sin, to get the hell out of you and to bring heaven into you until you are in heaven in glory. And he will use every bit of this life to do that, to produce his character in you, his love in you, to bring more of his kingdom in you, and to drive the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of hell that we are all born within us out of us. And unfortunately, or difficultly, trials do that the best. 
If you've ever had some money, you know that wealth and prosperity generally don't uh, produce character in you. All the rich people say amen. No, I'm just kidding. Don't, don't say that. <laughs> Suffering produces character in us. what the Bible says. Suffering produces character. And so God will allow suffering in our lives to expose the toxic root system that is choking us out. You don't think God knew it was going to happen with Jonah? He was like, whoo, this is going to be tough for my boy. I see the idolatry in his heart. I know how much he loves country. This is going to be hard for him. It wasn't just about Nineveh. God was doing something in Jonah's heart. And there he exposed this toxic root system that was eating away at Jonah, was choking him out, was pushing him further from God, was pushing him further ultimately from peace and joy and healing and restoration. The God began a process of restoration in Jonah, but he did not continue it as far as we know. Friends, I don't want to be that people. We must deal with it if we are to continue in that restorative process. God loves us that much that he would even pursue us with things that might hurt a little bit. Some of you are in that place right now where Jonah is. Something has happened that's forced you to kind of have a reckoning with God and maybe you're in a little bit of a weird place even this morning with him and you find yourself at a distance. You need to know today that your heavenly father is not afraid of whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're thinking toward him, whatever you're saying toward him, whatever you're feeling toward him. You might be afraid of it. Like, I don't even wanna, I don't even wanna say it out loud what I'm feeling toward God, but God knows and he's not afraid of it. He wasn't afraid with Jonah. He's not mad at you. He's not mad at you because of you. He wasn't mad at Jonah. I wanna encourage you today to start that conversation with God. God used this in Jonah's life to expose a root system that God could have a conversation around. Would you have a conversation with him today? Maybe just start by even just asking like, dang God, why, why am I feeling like this? I think he'll show you. I think he'll expose some things that can get that conversation, that healing, that restoration started. And where there is self-righteousness in you and you have put yourself in the place of being the judge or where you might find yourself saying, God, I, God I'm not going to follow you if, you if you do that. That's exposing idolatry. Call it for what it is. Dang, Lord, I've allowed something to become supreme in my life, the ultimate treasure in my life. Repent of that. Say, God, I want to put that in its right place and allow you to be on the throne. Call it for what it is because at some point you will lose that or it will fail you and it will destroy your heart. God doesn't want that for you. So turn from that today. Or if you've forgotten who you are, why you're here, the answer to all of this is the same. What do I do, Dom? The cure is the same for all of it. Grace. Grace is unmerited favor from God. We don't deserve it. He just gives it to us. It's us turning toward him and saying, I need you. I need you to help me with this idolatry of putting this thing, even a good thing, even a good thing, on the throne instead of you. I need you to help me with my self-righteousness that makes me feel like I have the right to judge them or even judge you, God. Lord, help me. I, I need your help with this. I've, I've forgotten that, that my life is about your purpose in and through me and others. It's not about, it's not about me. God, help me. I need your help today. 
One of the things I have loved seeing in the book of Jonah is how relentless God is pursuing Jonah. Like, this is a lot of trouble, dude. Like, create an entire storm for one dude? Like, tell a fish, hey, go get Jonah. Like, this is a lot of work. And then he sits down with Jonah after he's like, a whole city, 150,000 people, a city the size of Ventura gets saved. God is so relentless in his pursuit and so patient with him. And we don't know if Jonah ever responds. The book doesn't tell us. But may we be a people who respond to God's pursuit of us. Amen? As we pray, I'm just going to wait for a few seconds here as the team comes up. Let's just sit with the reality of these things. And uh, as you sit with God, I want you to be aware of the the truth that um, he is a heavenly father who sits down with his boy or his girl to talk through it with you. And we want to create some space to do that right now. This is why we have the second set for us to respond. So Lord, would you help us do that? Would you give us courage to respond? And would you open us, open up our eyes to your relentless love for us? Oh God, how you love us. <laughs> Open our eyes to understand how much you love us and give us courage to respond to that love today. And so right now, friends, the prayer team is going to be on the right and the left. They are here to help you take this step toward God. Wherever you find yourself at a little bit of a distance, maybe it's because of some kind of ongoing habitual sin. Maybe it's because of idolatry even of a good thing. Maybe it's because of just self-centeredness, whatever it is. Maybe it's because of doubt and despair. You find yourself a little bit of a distance from God. Whatever it is, there is just one step to come back to God today. I want to encourage you to be courageous to take that step. The prayer team is here to help you. If you need help, go to them right now during the second set and just say, I just need help. I need to step toward God. That's all you you have to say. Just say, I need to step toward God. Help me. If you've got more language, give them that. But even if you just say, "I, I need help. I need the Lord. They want to pray with you. And the communion elements are here today, and I want to I I encourage you as you take communion, come up and get communion, and as you do, as you do, let it be a declaration. Let it be a declaration, not of how good you have done, but how well Christ has performed on your behalf. Let it be a declaration of who you are as a child of God in him. Whoa, Lord, you did that so that I could become a child of God? Let it be a declaration of your need for God today. And the carpets are here, man. I'm so glad to have the carpets back. The carpets are here for us to take postures of humility and surrender and worship before God. Let's do that now.